0: Lord God, we acknowledge that your Word is inspired directly by the Holy Spirit. It is God-breathed. And as such, Lord God, we should approach it with humility. So we pray, Lord God, that we would have genuinely open ears and hearts, that we would be changed and challenged and fit for your service as a result of our study this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son, as it says in the NIV, or the prodigal son, is a very familiar parable told by Jesus. You've probably heard it many times, but it's a parable with a big impact. But before we try and discern the meaning of this parable, we need to just check the context and ask a very basic question, and that is, who exactly is Jesus talking to as he addresses the crowd with this parable? And he tells us, uh, Luke tells us, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we have these two groups of people to whom Jesus is addressing his parable here. We have one group here, the tax collectors, people described as sinners, people who were viewed as scum, people who were viewed as collaborators and as traitors, people who associated with the evil Roman governors. These are the people that Jesus is sharing with. And then we have the second group who are the religious. As Brian was talking about earlier on with the children, the Pharisees, the, the rule keepers, the, the church goers, the people who felt that they had their view of life and of God sussed out. And so, what Jesus wants to do as he communicates with these people is he wants to get across. Three main points to these very, very different groups. One one group of people listening to Jesus Christ, one group of people who were very, very critical of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that he wants to say to them is that repentance is possible for the sinner who wants to return. Repentance is possible for the sinner who wants to return. Verse 11 and 12, Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Now, in that culture and in that time, to, to actually ask what the young man asked for in this instance was to literally write your own death wish. To ask to be cut off from, from your farm. People from a rural background will understand this. To be, to be cut off from the family farm and from, by you know, de facto, your family itself. From your, from your farm, from your family, from anything of any worth. I mean, this was a reckless act by any admission. And more than that, to actually ask to be cut off from your own family and from your own father and from his farm while the father, while the old dad was still alive. I mean, this was an act of, of great impetuity. It was cheeky. It was an insult. And so we read verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, everything he'd been given, so he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He leaves everything behind and he goes to this Gentile land and he, he pleases himself. It literally says in the Greek, and I have to be careful because Stanley taught me Greek, he, he scattered his money living prodigally. Look up the dictionary, literally means lavishly. I have to have, um, I have to confess something here. Um, as, as I read this parable, I reflected again on it this morning, and I can see a bit of my old self before I became a Christian here, because I remember one particular night, I was out with a rugby club and uh, my university rugby team, and we were all about bit worse for wear, and we got to the cash machine, and I just wanted that extra 10 pounds for a kebab or a burger or something. It was bound to be food at the end of the night, and, You know, you have the range of options, you know, 100 pounds or 50 pounds or 20 pounds or 10 pounds. Well, we were all a bit worse for wear, and I accidentally pressed the 100 pound button and got 100 pounds out instead of a tenner. And of course, being prodigal, I spent it. And that's the kind of thing that young men do. And so we see in verse 14, there's a consequence to that kind of behavior, as I found out in my own life. And as as the prodigal son finds out in verse 14, because he runs into problems and famine strikes. And in verse 15, we see how severe the famine was because he had to go and work with pigs. And again, I actually find myself uh, having something in common with the prodigal son. Not that I am a pig, although my wife often says I am. It's that I've actually worked with pigs because I come from a farm. And if you don't come from a farm, I can tell you pigs smell. Now, I had a girlfriend at the time, and I don't know why she went out with me, because any time she got into my Ford Escort, it stunk of pigs. And it's easy to, you know, appreciate how smelly pigs are, but for a Jew, you see, for a Jew, Jewish people were not meant to touch the unclean animal the unclean meat. This was the depth of degradation. This is what Jesus wanted to communicate, that this this guy should not be working with pigs. I mean, he really had reached the lowest of the low. And in verse 16, you see, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so he wants unclean food shared with unclean animals owned by an unclean Gentile farmer in an unclean Gentile land. Despite his begging, he doesn't get anything. So he's in the depths of his crisis. In verses seventeen to twenty, you see he he records within himself this dawning realization that there's only one way out, and that's to go back and say sorry. And even if he doesn't get a reception from the family, I mean, how could he expect a reception from the family? He knew he couldn't, but he thought, well, maybe there would just be a tiny, tiny bit of mercy. And at least I would get some bread and some water. And I wouldn't starve. Now, there are lots of prodigals in our lives, aren't there? As I know myself. People who have fallen far of God and even of our own families. People who have lied to us. People who have been greedy. People who have been drunk or sexually immoral. People who have committed adultery. We all know people like that well. But Jesus says, if people recognize their own sin and recognize their stupidity, repentance is possible for the sinner who wants to return. And it's significant that Jesus would, would issue this parable as he faces his journey to the cross because it's in going to the cross that he's attempting to put sinners back into a relationship with God so that we sinners can return to God. And it's important to remember that context again as he he issues this parable. But there's also a second lesson in the second son, because if all Jesus wanted to do was talk about, you know, the importance of repentance, he would have stopped, you know, three quarters of the way through the parable. But he doesn't, because he wants us to understand a second thing here, and that is not to begrudge the grace of God. Verses 25 to 30 are very instructive. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants, and he asked him, what's going on? Well, your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has actually gone out and killed the fattened calf because he has not back safe and sound. Well, the older brother was so angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he's so dismissive, this son, when he comes back, he squandered your property with prostitutes. When he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So instead of rejoicing with the father, the older son is livid. He's hopping mad. He's really, really angry and he refuses to join the party and he starts to whine about he was the one who had slaved and worked hard all of these years. And along comes this waster and the father just kills the fattened calf and looks after him. Seems so unjust. And in fact, what the other son does is he embellishes the brother's sin. He says, look, he spent his money, not just on, you know, a bit of drink. He spent his money on prostitutes. I have never done that. He's really rubbing an in with the Father. Now again, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we can't forget the context. We can't forget these two groups and who the different sons represent. The prodigal son represents the first group, the tax collectors and sinners. And the second group, these self-righteous, finger-pointing Pharisees, are represented by the angry brother. And there are people like the second group in society and in our churches today, aren't there? People who think, you know, we, we, we can't have people like that around. People who gossip, did you, did you hear what so-and-so in our church did? That's not right, we can't have people like that in our church. Last year, I, um, because I'm a student, uh, Brian was actually at this, I, I, I was offered a free dinner and I took it. And uh, it was organized by a not Presbyterian Church. And um, it was uh, a dinner where they invited Jonathan Aiken to come along. Jonathan Aiken is, of course, the former Tory minister who had uh, got himself into trouble over undeclared um, interests and spent some time in prison. And in prison, he became a Christian. One of the amazing things about Jonathan Aiken, if you ever get a chance to hear him or speak to him, you should go and hear him. One of the amazing things about Aiken was how he he wasn't that arrogant, greedy, 1980s Thatcherite. He was a genuinely changed man. You could tell to look at him. His whole countenance had had changed. He was was genuinely converted. And yet, you know, whenever you read of Aiken in the secular press, people always refer to him as that disgraced former Tory minister. People are not in the business of extending grace, and we can be like that too. And we mustn't begrudge the grace of God. We mustn't begrudge it, because we ourselves need that grace, and the fact is we do need it. Because it doesn't matter how perfect we try to be, whether we attend church or whether we take communion or whether you know, we have our kids baptized or it doesn't even matter how much money we give, how active we are in the church. We're never going to be perfect just as this other brother thought he was perfect in the sight of his father. We will never be perfect in the sight of our awesome and holy God. That is why he is God And that is why his son was sacrificed again, brings us back to the cross, so that we can be brought to the Father perfectly because of Christ. So, we mustn't begrudge the grace of God, the grace that's been shown to us, that we must show it to others. Now, that would transform society if people read that scripture and believed in it, wouldn't it? Transform Northern Ireland. But there's a third thing here as we conclude. And that is we're to look at the love of the father himself. Notice how different the father is here. Verse 20 describes what happens when the prodigal son returns. So he got up and went to his father. This is the prodigal son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Notice the fact that the father spotted him from a long way off. There's a sense in which he was anticipating the son's return. He longed for his son's return. He wanted his son to return. He was searching and hoping for this return. And look at how he breaks convention here in the Scriptures, how, you know, all of the dignity and the custom and the norms of the day, the cultural norms, just cast aside as he ran. And he embraced the arms around. He just wants to embrace and he just wants to hug and kiss his lost son. And there's nothing reserved about this outburst of emotion and of love. And so, whereas the normal prodigal would be punished. The father treats this son as the honored guest, and he throws the banquet for him, but we also see the love of the father in a second way here, too, because look at the way he treats the other son, the angry son. Because that son deserved rebuke. He was a bit cheeky, because he had his father's love every day. And yet this loving father treats the furious brother with compassion to my son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So we have these three points. Repentance is possible for the sinner who wants to return. We mustn't begrudge the grace of God and we're to look at the love of the father. Now, I don't know what image you have of God as we look at some application here. I don't know what image you have of God because some people have what we would call an Old Testament image of God. And this is the God who punishes sin and condemns sin and is a righteous God and a holy God, a God of wrath and a God of awe and a God of power and of splendor, the God who crushes his enemies. Tonight we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 3, the holy God, Yahweh. But then Jesus Jesus gives us a unique picture here in the New Testament of a father who runs to us. You know, a God with his arms outstretched in love wants to hug us. Now, which, which, which picture is true? Is it, is it the Old Testament picture or is it the New? Well, the answer is, it's both. And again, we're traveling to Calvary. And it's at Calvary that we can see both where Christ died, where, where the God of awe and of wrath and of holiness punishes not us, but his son. And yet in love, he raises him from the dead and seats him at his right hand. And so faith in Christ allows us to call God our Father. Often in Aramaic, one of the biblical languages is translated the word Abba which doesn't simply mean Father it literally means our Daddy. I don't know as I've asked what image you have of God but there are these two images and they complement each other. We do have a God of all, but we also have the God of love, the God of justice, but the God of grace, our Father. Now, if anything else, that should wholly transform the way we approach God when we kneel in prayer and when we intercede for our own lives and for the lives of others around us because he loves us and he cares for us. He wants to listen to us. And above all, God, our Father, wants to embrace us and welcome us, welcome us into his family. Let's pray together.